Thank you, Emery, for that stuttering introduction. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll begin with a reminder. I haven't done this in a while, but we used to do this every Sunday service and read these mar- marvelous verses. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Each person should decide in his heart what to give and shouldn't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. It is God who produces in you the desires and actions that please him. And I'm convinced that God who began this work, this good work in you, will carry it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And my God will supply all your needs This is a good promise for the times in which we're entering, inflation, recession, and more. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And as Paul said, not even hunger can separate us from the love of God and from his provision. So, Father, we thank you today for the opportunity, once again, to look into your gracious word. Once again, to look into the mirror of the fulfilled law of freedom, and once again, to celebrate our freedom through your free word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to Hebrews chapter 8 today, and also spinning off from a passage we considered in our freedom special in increment 225. This is increment 226. It's called the True Tent Part 2, Pitched by the Lord, Not man pitched by the lord not man the true tent the heavenly tent the authentic tent the heavenly tabernacle so we begin with a spin off as we might say from our last increment and freedom special that you've come to the heavenly city jerusalem says hebrews 12:22 means that we've already come to the Jerusalem above. That's what Paul calls it in Galatians 4, 26 and following. He calls her the mother of us all who is free. Freedom is the hallmark of the new Jerusalem to which we've come. It's a freedom that can't be taken away even in a time when freedoms are being taken away from us in our national entities. We are already citizens there in this Jerusalem from above. For as the Apostle Paul declared, our citizenship is in heaven. Present tense. From whence will come our deliverer, whom we eagerly await. And I want to emphasize this word, Lord. Our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ who will radically alter our present miserable bodily condition and make it conformable with his own glorious body by the omnipotent power that he, our Lord Jesus, has to subject all things to himself. That's a paraphrase of Philippians 3.20 to 21. Now let the accent in this message at least the first part of it, let's let the accent fall on the title Lord, Kyrios, Lord, translated off in the Old Testament as God's name, Yahweh. Let the accent fall on the title Lord, 
in the phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now note the pro proliferation of the word Lord, for example, in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. We read it in our last Freedom Special, last message, 225. But listen carefully as I read it and how many times the word Lord is found and accentuated. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain. A feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. On this mountain, he will destroy the burial shroud, the shroud over all peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. On the day, that day, it will be said, look, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Who's saying this? Israel? Yeah. But all the nations, all the peoples, and every face will have tears wiped away from it. This is the universal saving grace of Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, note well that this is the Lord's doing and not man's. The Lord of the armies prepares a feast for all the nations on Mount Zion, this mountain to which we've come. It's on this mountain that the Lord will destroy death forever. In fact, on Mount Calvary, he destroyed death forever. It's the Lord who will wipe away the tears from every face. For the Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. This is a work that the Lord performs and not man. And because it is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in the enlightened eyes of our heart. Combine Psalm 118.23 with Ephesians 1.18. In Matthew 13, 16, which says, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. The eyes of our heart that have been opened to see Jesus in his universally saving significance. Blessed are you if your eyes, the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your understanding have been opened to see Jesus in his universally saving glory. Note that in Isaiah 26, 9, it says, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Compare this with Philippians 3, 20, which says that we await a savior, a deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that in Isaiah 26, 9a, it says, look, this is our God, and then this is the Lord. Compare Titus 2.13, which says that we wait for the epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Note that it says we wait for him. That means with great anticipation. As in 26.9, it says we have waited for him. Compare Hebrews 9.28 which says, so also the Messiah 
having been once offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Note well that this Messiah, the Christ, is also called, quote, the great shepherd of the sheep, whom the God of peace has brought up from the dead. And then there's a pause and it says, our Lord Jesus, Hebrews thirteen twenty. Recall what Thomas said when he looked upon Jesus, who had been pierced. According to Zechariah twelve ten, he is Yahweh who has been pierced. According to John nineteen thirty seven, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Speaking of the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross. And in John 20, 27, Thomas looked upon him who was pierced. What did he say? My Lord and my God. John 20, 28. And don't forget that what Thomas saw, <clears throat> which elicited his faith, kindled his faith, is what every eye will see. Eliciting the faith of all of humanity. Will all of humanity believe? Yes, they will. When, like Thomas, they see the one whom was pierced, and every eye will see him, says the scripture in Zechariah 1 7 and, excuse me, Revelation 1 7, Zechariah 12 10. This is when, <coughs> excuse me, we will all come to the unity of the faith, according to Ephesians 4 13. Remember, that when the risen Christ appeared on the beach early one morning, and remember what the disciple whom Jesus loved exclaimed to Peter. He said, it's the Lord. John 21, 7. Recall again that we wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will radically alter the condition of our bodies making them conformable to his own body of glory. This is the radical alteration of the human condition about which we've been speaking lately quite a bit and have yet to say much. It is the alteration of our human condition. It is the salvation which our Lord God and Savior brings with him in his second appearing as great archpriest. This alteration is not only of the human condition, even the bodily condition of all humanity, but it's the alteration of the entire universe, the entire creational condition, by the same power that he has to subject all things to himself. As the scripture says, Philippians 3.21, and I'll emphasize it again, goes on to declare that the Lord Jesus Christ changes, that means radically alters, our bodily condition by the same power that he has to subject all things, that's the universe, to himself. Meaning that all things in the heavens and on earth will be made alive in him with his own life.
This is the doing of the Lord, not man. This is the doing of the Lord, not man. Though the Lord is the man, Christ Jesus. The man who is the Lord, Yahweh, who is Yeshua. Jesus, whom we see with the enlightened eyes of our heart on the highest levels of our human consciousness, where we also experience the freedom of a decisively purged conscience, a conscience purified from dead works and from guilt by the blood of Christ, who at the juncture of the ages offered himself to God through the eternal spirit. Hebrews 9.14 in connection with 9.26. This so great salvation is of the Lord. This so great salvation, as it's called in Hebrews 2.3, is from the Lord. This eternal salvation, as it's called in Hebrews 5.9, is from the Lord. As Psalm 3.8 exclaims, salvation is of the Lord. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, our lead-off passage, concludes in verse 9 with, On that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I'm deliberately repeating these verses to accentuate Lord and salvation. It is his salvation, the salvation that is of the Lord. Our God, according to Psalm 68:20, is a God who saves, a God of salvation. The salvation that is called such a great salvation in Hebrews 2:3, salvation that we neglect to our peril, is the salvation that is of the Lord, of the Lord. That this such great salvation is neglected in our time and in our nation and even in the church. That's the biggest reason why our nation and the world is in such perilous times. Because of the neglect of such a great salvation articulated and embodied in Jesus Christ. I'll say it again, that this great salvation is neglected in our times, even largely by the church, is the biggest reason why our nation and the world is in such perilous times. For as the scripture says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in a son. And in these last days, perilous times will come. And how shall we escape perilous times? Meaning, if we neglect such a great salvation, which very salvation, having begun to be articulated through the Lord, says Hebrews 2.4, was confirmed by those who heard him. That's 2.3 actually. Verse 4 says, God himself testifying at the same time, both by wonders and various kinds of miracles, and by distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit as he willed. This great salvation articulated first by the Lord 
It was wrought by the Lord then and embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. Its radical center is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And its efficacious and saving effect is universal and diachronic, covering all time. And both its radical center and its universal horizon is being neglected by the church at large. Again, L.S. Chafer, <clears throat> one of my early mentors, Lewis Berry Chafer, and I'm currently having a kind of a dialectic with him because he believed in the unconditionality of grace in many respects, but he didn't believe in the universality of grace. And so with a little bit of a tweak of some of his writings, I've been having a lot of fun with taking it a step further if he saw that USSJC. Again, Lewis Bray Chafer was spot on, though, in his assessment in his preface to Grace, his little classic book. He said this, Through false emphasis by many religious leaders, Christianity has become, in the estimation of a large part of the public, no more than an ethical system. The revealed fact, however, he goes on to say, <clears throat> is that the supreme feature of the Christian faith is that supernatural, saving, transforming work of God, which is made possible through the infinite sacrifice of Christ and which, in sovereign grace, is freely bestowed on all who believe. Close quote, Lewis Sperry Chafer. I would amend this. Here's part of my dialectic with him. I would amend this only slightly and eliminate the last two words in this question, in this quotation rather, on all who believe or all who believe. I take out the last two words, who believe. For I've come to believe that in sovereign grace, salvation is freely bestowed on all, period. Chafer was brilliant in his assessment of the nature of God's saving grace. But for reasons known only to the Lord, this great teacher never, to my knowledge, conveyed an understanding of the universality of God's saving grace and mercy. Even though on one page in Grace I've been rereading recently, in a single paragraph, he both alluded to and fully quoted Romans 11.32. For God has concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. It's amazing how someone can quote that, allude to it, teach on it, and miss the fact that it's declaring God's saving mercy on all of humanity. Chafer, as well as many others in his time and in our time, conditioned salvation upon human belief or faith. But even faith is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord and his faithfulness, not the faith of man. Salvation 
is of the Lord, not man. It's a tent pitched by the Lord, not man. If you get the hint. Though, on the other hand, it is by the man, Christ Jesus, the man who is the Lord and the sole mediator between the one God and all of humanity, who gave his life to ransom all of humanity from the slave market of sin and from sin's dire consequences or wages, the everlasting consequences of sin, which is an unspeakable kind of never-ending death. He redeemed us from that. He gave his life to ransom us from that. For as the scripture says, <clears throat> quote, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. The salvation that is of the Lord came through a man, a man who is the Lord. That's why the scripture declares unequivocally, salvation is of the Lord, the Lord is is our Lord Jesus Christ, the man through whom comes the resurrection of the dead. And as we all know by now, 1 Corinthians 15.21 is followed by 1 Corinthians 15.22. Mrs. Rao, Mike's wife, June, told me yesterday, on the very day, June 20th, in which her husband passed into the presence of Christ, she told me this verse is what convinced her of the saving significance of Jesus Christ. Mike couldn't do it, she said, but this verse did. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Again, Chafer was right when he wrote, quote, through false emphasis by many religious leaders, Christianity has become, in the estimation of a large part of the public, no more than an ethical system. No wonder there's been a mass exodus from churches and a dismissal of so-called Christianity <clears throat> by so many today. If Christianity is, in fact, no more than an ethical system, then, in my view, it's an invitation to misery. It's a summons to an impossible piety. Indeed, Christianity does involve an impossible livingness, impossible to us, but not to the Lord. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to act for his gracious purpose and pleasure. In Philippians 2.13. In 1 Corinthians 15.19, Paul quote wrote quite honestly, and Paul was being frank and honest about this when he said, if we have placed our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And he's right. We could say with Paul, amending his statement slightly, if Christianity is no more than an ethical system, then Christians should be pitied more than anyone. But as we will discover afresh, there is the new covenant based on promises that include the promise that God places his spirit in us and causes us to walk in his statutes, the primary one being love one another 
as I have loved you, says Jesus. On top of this, as we've discovered, our hope is not only in this life, but for the endless life of the new creation in which all things are to be made new. In keeping with this powerful theme, even though the Lord Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself, per Philippians 3.21, the Father actually does this. The Father is the one who brings everything under the Son's feet. For as David said, quote, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning Yahweh the Father said to my Lord, my greater descendant, Jesus Christ, the Father said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand, what? Until I make all your enemies a footrest for your feet. Very familiar verse, Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1. In the micro-apocalypse, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, God the Father is the only exception to all that's salvifically submitted to the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way the Lord Jesus announced in the days of his flesh, I have power to lay my life down and power to take it back again, meaning in resurrection. John 18, 10, 18. Though Jesus had this power, here's the question. Can it be said that he exercised it in his resurrection? For it says, God raised him up by the Holy Spirit in Romans 1, 4 and 8, 11. Ah, yes, but Jesus also said, I and the Father are one. So it could be said that though the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus the Son, one with the Father, took up that life, that human and divine life, in the resurrection from the dead. And though it says the God of peace brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, in Hebrews 13.20, it also says that Jesus, who is our peace, in Ephesians 2.14, and who is one with the Father in being an act, in John 10.30, also took his life back again. He is one with the Father in being and act, but not in mode of being or act. As the Son of God raised up the temple of his body that men had destroyed. For speaking of the temple of his body, he, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus said, Destroy this temple. Go ahead. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. I will raise it up. We may even say that the temple which Jesus raised up is the same as the true tent which the Lord pitched and not man in Hebrews 8.2. In fact, and I'll make this a brief message since Sunday's was relatively long, In fact, I said all that to say this. Sometimes people give long answers to questions on TV when they're interviewed by talking heads and they say, well, I said all that to say this. I'm saying all that. All that I said so far in this message is to say this. Hebrews 1b, we have an archpriest who is of such significance 
that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent, the one pitched by the Lord, not man. Hain epexain hokurios uk anthropos, the Lord and not man, that the Lord and not man pitched, the word in the Greek is the, the word pegnumi, P-E-G-N-U-M-I, pegnumi, P-E-G-N-U-M-I. And that is from, that's the lemma of the word epexin. It means, we, I think, I'm f- kind of suspicious that this word peg is where we get the word tent peg because this is translated as pitched, the Lord pitched or pitched a tent or made a tent, we could even say. The Lord pitched the tent, not man. So that the Lord, not man, pitched, that's epexin or the Aristactive third-person singular form of the lemma pegnumi, this true tent, this heavenly tabernacle, speaks to all that we've said before about the Lord. By the Lord and not by man is a phrase that can apply to a vast variety of phenomena, including, perhaps most of all, salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9. And not of man. And because it is of the Lord and not man, it is universal and not just particular. It is free and not earned or merited or deserved. It derives from the faithfulness of God in Christ and not from man's faith or faithfulness. It is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in enlightened eyes. Because it is the Lord's doing, the action of a God who saves, who saves us completely. Moreover, Jesus, our great archpriest, is a superior minister to Aaron. It says that he is a minister in the holy places of a true tent, meaning a heavenly tent, as opposed to the temple servant, the archpriest Aaron, who served in an earthly tent, a typical tent offering shadow sacrifices. So Jesus, our great archpriest, is a superior minister to Aaron. He's a superior mediator to Moses of a superior covenant than that of which Moses was mediator and angels were messengers. The tent associated with the old covenant and the former system of priesthood and sacrifices was pitched by man specifically by men under Moses' direction. But the PT has already demonstrated the superiority of Jesus over Moses, as he has shown Jesus' superiority over Aaron and over all the angels. The true tent, the heavenly one, has the supreme distinction of being set up by the Lord and not by man. This is the Lord's doing. This is the incarnation of the eternal word. This is the dwelling amongst us, the tenting amongst us of God in the flesh. It is marvelous 
in our enlightened eyes. And we thank you, Father. And I pray that for those eyes that have not yet been opened to see the universal significance and saving significance of Jesus Christ, that you'll open them, open them widely, so that these eyes may be blessed to see Jesus crowned with such glory and such honor as such a great Savior, such a great God, such a great Archpriest, serving in the true tent in the heavens themselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.